to <clears throat> start a new book of the New Testament. In, re in reality, we're going to have an introduction to the book of Ephesians. So I'm really just going to be sharing with you this morning on the introduction. There won't be a, really any uh, scripture, you know, going along uh, in the book. I'm going to read the first three verses, but then the rest is just going to be speaking to you about what we're going to be finding out and what to look for and, and what, again, Paul's stressing to us. The general theme of the letter to the Ephesians is suggested right off the bat in the first verse. This is not unusual, an unusual thing for Paul to do. He just couldn't hold himself back, and he immediately jumps into his theme. Verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. There it is. The theme of the letter, first and foremost, is God. God. Written to the saints <clears throat> who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ. And then he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, God, God. The Apostle Paul always starts this way. And that's how every Christian should start. God, God, God. From the first moment they wake up to the last when they lay down on their pillow. God, God, God. This is the theme that controls everything. The Bible is God's book. It's a revelation of God. And our thinking must always start with God. A lot of trouble in the church today is because we're so subjective. Meaning we're so influenced, we're so moved by our feelings and our tastes and our opinions. We're so interested in ourselves. And then based on our own feelings and ideas, that's how we build a church. We become, and then after that, we become miserable and discouraged and we spend our time in the shallow waters of the river of life with God in misery because we're moved so much by our feelings. The message of the Bible from start to finish is designed to bring us back to God always. To humble us, to see our, our, our true relationship to Him. That is the great theme of this letter. It holds us face to face with God and what God is and what God has done. And it emphasizes all through the letter the glory and the greatness of God, the eternal one, God everlasting, God over all, and his indescribable glory. One writer has described the letter to the Ephesians as the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Another has said that it's the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate or complete compendium or collection of our holy 
Christian faith. The word church is found almost 80 times in the New Testament. In the next several weeks, we're going to be studying about the church. Who is the church? Who's the church? We are. Not this building. The minute we exit this building, it's nothing but concrete and wood and plaster and whatever else it's made out of. It's just a building. We are the church. Now, we are the church, and we're going to be studying what the church is, but not as it is often, not as it often is. In other words, we're going to study the church not as what the church is today. Not the way the church is understood to be today. We're going to be studying what the church originally was. And we need to compare what we think of it today, compare it to what it was in the book of Acts. Because that's where we need to get back to. Not as the church is often looked at today or understood. The church, the way it should be, and as it can be, and as it has to be again, is where we want to go. It's important that we understand that. And I'm going to share a lot of things with you from a book I read a long time ago, several years ago, called Body Life by Ray Steadman. When you think about the church, what kind of things or thoughts go through your mind? Bunch of hypocrites. It's okay. There's room for more. Religion? Religious terms? Rituals? Rules? Regulations? Boredom? No fun? Money? Right-wing conservatives? list goes on. Is it a place where people mindlessly just go every week to make sure they're going to heaven? Or to just feel good about themselves. It's sad, but the church has been and done all of these things. And that's why it's turned people away from God and away from the church and made them agnostics and atheists out of them. But they're not going to be able to blame that, blame the church, blame the people, you know, for their reason from not having a relationship with God. They're not going to be able to stand before God in heaven and say, well, you know, I didn't go to church and I didn't really have a relationship with you because of the people I met in the church. Or I knew a Christian once. How many times have you heard that? I knew a Christian once. And and, and the way they lived, it didn't impress me. It wasn't, basically it wasn't much more different than the way I lived. So why would I want to go to church? Why would I want to know their God? Again, we need to remember, people are not the standard. When I stand before God, I'm not going to be able to say, well, that person. People are not our standard. Jesus Christ is the standard, and that's the one we will measure against when we stand before the Father. Like the Christian who was witnessing to a friend, his friend said, stop I don't want to hear anymore. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. So just leave me alone. Don't bother. The Christian said to his friend, well, can I ask you just one more question? 
He said, okay, just one. Tell me, what did you read in the Bible to make you believe there is no God? The atheist said, well, I've never read the Bible. He said, well, then you're not an atheist, you're a moron. <laughs> How many times we say we don't believe in God, we don't want to go to church, blah, blah, blah. And we really don't know why other than, well, somebody said, or I saw somebody, or I knew somebody. Terrible way to make a decision. You know, you make a lot of big decisions in life, and, and I know that you just don't say, well, I heard somebody say, and well, I'm not going to because... No, you do the research. You do the research and you find out for yourself why I'm going to do this or why I'm not. And your eternal destiny is the most important decision you'll ever make. You better find out the facts. You better find out the truth about eternity before you make a judgment. One of the church fathers said that the church was something like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the judgment on the outside, you could never stand the smell on the inside. But even with all of the church's mistakes and all of the church's imperfections and its weaknesses and its hypocrisies, the church has been the most powerful force and influence for good since the day it was born on the day of Pentecost up to this very moment. The church has been a light in the darkest of times. And in the darkest of places. It's been salt. It is salt. Preserving the good. Now that sounds like such a contradiction. There's sin in the church. And yet, there's good in the church. Hopefully we'll get a better understanding of what seems to be a contradiction of the church. And learn God's design for the church and what he created it to be. And in doing that, we'll find some of the deepest and most exciting life-changing facts of all of God's truths. And churches come in all different sizes, all kinds of different shapes. In some places, they meet secretly in homes. Some meet in theaters. Some meet in parks, storefronts. The buildings will be different, but the church is not limited to four walls. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You see, that's the church in its simplest form, where Jesus is. The church of Jesus Christ is people, his people, of every race, of every nation, who love Jesus and are committed to serving him. The church age started on the day of Pentecost, born in Jerusalem through prayer, and it spread quickly because of the ministry of the apostles and the believers. It grew even more when it was persecuted by spreading to other cities and nations. On three missionary journeys, Paul and his companions started local churches in many of the Gentile cities, and one of the most well-known of those churches was Ephesus in A.D. 53 on Paul's trip home to Jerusalem. Paul went back a year later on his third missionary journey and he stayed there for three years and he, he, he taught and he preached and it was very effective. At another time, Paul met with the Ephesian elders and he sent Timothy uh, to serve as their leader. And just a few years later, Paul was sent as a prisoner to Rome. And there in Rome, messengers from different churches came and visited Paul 
including Tychicus of Ephesus. And Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, and he sent it with Tychicus. The letter wasn't written to deal with the problem of heresy, you know, false teaching, false prophets. It wasn't written to deal with any specific problem. Ephesians is a letter of encouragement to the church, and we need encouragement today. In the letter, Paul describes the nature and appearance of the church, and he challenges the Christians to function together as the living body of Christ on earth. And after he gives them a warning, after he gives them a warm greeting in chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, Paul tells them with great confidence what the nature of the church is and the wonderful fact that believers in Christ have been showered with God's kindness, that is, with every spiritual gift in heavenly places in Christ in chapters 1, 3 through 8. And that they're chosen for greatness in chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And that they're marked by the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit's power, chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. And they're freed from sin's curse and bondage in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And they're brought near to God in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. As part of God's family, we stand alongside the great company of prophets and apostles and Jews and Gentiles and Jesus himself. Gen uh, Ephesus 2, 19 through chapter 3, verse 13. And then all of a sudden, as if, he was, as if Paul was kind of overwhelmed by emotion, remembering everything that God has done, Paul challenges the Ephesians to live close to Jesus. And then he breaks into this kind of impulsive, unexpected praise there in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Then Paul turns his attention to the implications, that is, what it means being in the body of Christ, the church. Believers should have unity in their commitment to Christ and their use of their spiritual gifts, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. They should have the highest moral standards, chapter 4, verse 17 through chapter 6 through 9. And for each individual Christian, this means rejecting heathen practices, chapter 4, verse 17 through chapter 5, 20. And for the family, this means mutual submission and love to and for one another, chapter 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. And then Paul reminds them that the church is a is in a constant all-out battle with the forces of darkness and that the church has used every spiritual weapon that God has made available to them in chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, which he's speaking about the armor of God. And then Paul finishes the letter by asking them to pray for him, commissioning Tychicus and giving a blessing in chapter 6, verse 18 through 24. The purpose for the letter to the Ephesians was, is to strengthen the believers in Ephesus in their Christian faith by explaining the nature and purpose of the church, the body of Christ. The key verse is chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in hope uh, of your calling, one Lord, one, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 
So as we read and study this expert description of the church, I mean, we can thank God for the diversity and the unity in his family. And pray for each other. Pray for your brothers and sisters all over the world and draw close to those in your own church family. Now, this church has been together for approximately 25 years. Now, we've started at the theater and we've ended up here. A lot of stuff in between. We've gone through a lot of changes. But God has been so good to us. And he's led us here and given us this beautiful home. But here's the thing. If the family in the home is in turmoil, the home isn't very enjoyable. doesn't matter how beautiful the home is. If we're not happy in that home, it's not enjoyable. Before we start our study in Ephesians, write the name of your own city, excuse me, or your own, or your church, okay, in in the second part of verse one, where it says, to the saints who are in Cabina, to the saints who are in Calvary Chapel Cornerstone, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Like I said, write your city in there where you live or your church. Make it personal. Read it as if Paul, and he is, is writing to you specifically. The church more than ever before has to be revived, revitalized, re-energized, rejuvenated, recharged, rededicated to its original purpose. That's what we've got to get back to, the, back to the basics. And our prayer and desire should be that we, together, will learn the nature and the purpose of real, that is, biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity. The church has to become, again, the church that God intended it to be. We, the church, have to become the kind of New Testament Christians biblical Christians that God intended us to be. We have to learn to practice deep koinonia fellowship again. We have to learn to carry one another's burdens. And we have to learn not to wait until those sins drag them down to total spiritual defeat. James knew how dangerous sin was to the Lone Ranger Christian, that is the isolated believer. Sin loves to keep private and secret, but God wants sin exposed and he wants it dealt with in the loving fellowship of other believers. So James called for mutual honesty and mutual confession as believers pray for one another. Keeping open, sharing and praying relationships with other Christians will help keep believers from hitting bottom in their spiritual lives. And this kind of relationship helps give the spiritual strength that gives us victory over sin. And they also provide godly pressure. That is the the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit to confess and forsake sins before those sins become overwhelming, overwhelming to the point of total spiritual defeat. And we have to learn to rejoice with one another. We have to learn to encourage one another. We saw that in Galatians. We have to learn to rejoice in the variety of our gifts and abilities while, while keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And I don't have to tell you, we are living in dangerous times more than ever before. And we have to learn what it means to live the body life that Paul speaks about here in Ephesians. Learn about the amazing energy and power that God gives his people when they live close together in a loving, caring unity with him and with each other. And our time together in Ephesians isn't just something to be studied, but it's also to be put into practice in our lives, to be lived and to build our lives on every day. We want to learn what the church originally was, not what it often is thought to be today. We want to look back on what the church originally was and what the church can be and should be and has to be again. But how can we explain what seems to be such a contradiction? Again, you know, they're, they're, they're about the, the sin in the church and then the church is a light. How do we explain that? How can, how can the church be full of sin and yet be light and salt at the same time? How can the church be a place of disappointment and a place of enlightenment at the same time? Well, the answer is found in the Bible. Like, you'll find many answers to your questions in the Bible. That shouldn't surprise anyone. You find a lot of answers to your questions in Scripture when you read it and study it. So how can we explain why there seems to be such a contradiction regarding the church? Again, how can the church be full of sin and be full of light and salt? How can the church be a place of disappointment and a place of enlightenment at the same time? Well, here it is. We call, uh, we call the church, what we call the church is really two churches. One is selfish, power-hungry, and sinful. The other is loving, forgiving, and godly. One has a long history of stirring up hatred, conflict, and bloody persecution, all in the name of God and religion. The other has always tried to heal men's hurts, break down racial walls and classes, and deliver men and women from their guilt, shame, fear, and ignorance. One is a false church, a counterfeit, a phony imitation, impersonating Christianity, but whose head is Satan. The other is the true church, founded by Jesus Christ reflecting his true character through acts of love, self-sacrifice, courage, and truth. And for a long time, I couldn't understand and was surprised why some people in church who said they were Christians and have been in the church for a long time seemed to never conform to the word of God. But after this morning, we shouldn't be surprised when we have an encounter with the counterfeit church. For some Christians who have had a painful experience with a false church, it causes a lot of pain and disappointment so that they start to actually wonder, is there really a God? Is church for real? Is it really worth going to church? But we shouldn't be surprised or disappointed when we run into counterfeit Christianity because Jesus himself said that the false church would come. In Matthew 13, Jesus uses several parables to describe conditions in the world between his first coming and his second coming. The time in between is the time that we're living in right now. We are living between his first coming and his second coming. 
And one of those parables that Jesus taught was about the wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 40. I'm sorry. Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 40. Let me read it to you. The king, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And he says, this is Jesus. But while men slept, his enemy, Satan, came and sowed tares or weeds among the wheat and, then, and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will say to you, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. You see, the wheat represents Christians who Jesus calls the sons of the kingdom. But after the wheat was planted, the devil comes in and he plants tares or wheat. The tares look just like wheat, but they don't produce any grain. So the tares are actually counterfeit wheat. And these tares represent the counterfeit Christians who Jesus calls the sons of the wicked one. Now, outwardly, they look like the real thing, just like the tares do, but they're false Christians. The wheat and the tares, they grow up together in the church. They look exactly alike. You can't tell them apart from each other, at least for a while. Pretty soon, the workers notice something. Hey, there's weeds growing alongside the wheat. So they ask Jesus, hey, can, should we dig up the tares? And Jesus said, no, let them both grow. Let them grow together until the harvest. And then Jesus said the harvest will take place at the end of the age when he sends his angels into the field to separate the wheat from the tares. The tares will be burned up in judgment, but the wheat will be gathered into his father's barns. The wheat are true Christians, the sons of the kingdom. They are those who have experienced what the Bible calls the new birth. As Jesus says in John 3, 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And then later on, the apostle Peter describes the true Christians as being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 1 Peter 1, 23. The sons of the wicked one are the false Christians, never born again by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in the word of God but who claim to be Christians. They claim to be Christians because maybe they have fulfilled or performed some outward religious ritual. Maybe they've performed some sacrament or joined a local church. They've done some duty or they're relying on their outward good behavior or they want to disguise their own evil and sin using religion as a cover-up. But in God's eyes, they're children of Satan. To other people and even to themselves. You can't tell them apart from the true Christians. So it's not surprising that that the church gives such a confused picture to the world. If we ignore the Bible's picture, as Jesus has shown us by his parable of the wheat and the tares, then the church looks confusing even to those who love the church and defend it. If we can't recognize the split personality of the church, 
and insist on understanding these two different churches as one and the same, then we are destined to a kind of split personality of the church that will leave us frustrated and confused. So can we separate the church from the faults? We can't. Because we can only do it based on what we see outwardly. So all this confusion and bickering about who's the true church has robbed the church of the sense of who it is. Light and darkness. But what if we examine the lives of individual Christians? Can we do it that way? No. The ones who show counterfeit Christianity are false Christians. Those who show true Christianity are true Christians. That won't work either because true Christians are capable of, true, of showing true and false Christianity. Not at the same time, but through ignorance or willful disobedience. And when they do, they do just as much harm as the unsaved people around them. They disgrace the gospel and they bring shame and dishonor to their Lord. So the truth is, it's easy to be a Christian but not live a Christian life. And even though living in disobedience is dull and it's unfruitful and it's deadly, and even though the true Christian is, life is necessary, exciting, and effective, many Christians will still choose disobedience. They hurt themselves and the people around them and they grieve the Lord. The world today is filled with people who are confused and afraid and they're looking for something real. They're desperately looking for a safe place to run to in a world that's plagued with drugs and hatred, widespread crime, you know, racial division and unrest, the threat of nuclear war, a changing social environment, and the list goes on. And when you read the news, it's like reading and confirming the prophecies of Daniel and John and Jesus when they're talking about the last days, when the wheat and the tares are going to be harvested. So it's even more important today, more urgent today, that we look at God's word to find out the true nature and function of real biblical Christianity. And that we go back or get back, get back the dynamic energy and power of the early church. Our world is a very complicated place today. Especially when you compare it with the world of the early church. And yet there is no reason why the church today shouldn't be what the church is in the book of Acts. True Christianity operates on exactly the same principles and foundation today as it did in the book of Acts. Let me read to you from Acts 2, 42 through 47. It's a prescription. It's the prescription for a healthy church. It says, and they continued. The word continued means to abide. It means to stay or remain in a given place or thing. They, uh, they continued steadfastly, that is consistently, in the apostles' doctrine, the word. So the Christians in that day, they continued consistently in the word of God. And fellowship. And in the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. Notice that. Until that kind of a Christianity is lived, that kind of a continuing and, and abiding and consistency is lived according to the word of God, people aren't going to fear God. 
because we're, like, we're not like anybody else. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and in prayers, and then fear came upon every soul. And notice, many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. It goes on to say, now all who believed were together. We are not together today. He said, and they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Whoever was in need, the church got together and met that person's need. It says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Notice it said they continued daily in the temple. They went to church every day. We have trouble getting here once a week. They were praising God. They were having favor with all people. No cliques. No special little groups. And that's why the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. That is the prescription for a godly church, a powerful church, where you see people getting saved. The same power that turned the world upside right in the book of Acts is the same power that's available to us right here, right now. God hasn't changed. His word hasn't changed. The Holy Spirit hasn't changed. The church has changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, not just some of it. Do according to all that is written in it, for then, notice, then, After you observe all that's written in it, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. The only thing that's keeping us from experiencing that power right now is us. I think it's a lack of knowledge of the Word of God because most Christians don't know the biblical pattern for the church. We need to understand that parts of true And false Christianity will be mixed together in the same world, in the same church, even in the same person. So if we can't separate the tares from the wheat, we shouldn't focus on how to root them out. We shouldn't try to figure out how do we remove the tares from the wheat. But we need to do everything that we can to make the true wheat in the church so strong that the tares are powerless to damage the church and they won't have any influence on the church. Jesus said he would build his church upon a rock, an unshakable foundation. And that rock was his messiahship and his deity. As Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then on the day of Pentecost, his church came into being by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at first, there was no sign of false Christianity. 
Then on the day of Pentecost, his church came into being, like I said, on the, on the, uh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. The true Christian life that was demonstrated shook the whole city of Jerusalem, and it soon spread to other cities and villages. And then just like Jesus said, the false seeds of Satan's weeds took root and started to show up, not only as counterfeit Christians within the church, like Ananias and Sapphira, started right there when they lied to Peter about how much they sold their house for. So it not only showed up as counterfeit Christians in the church, but also uh, as true Christians, like Simon Magus in Acts 8. Once the weeds started to show up, it was the, 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 the apostles' job to teach Christians how to recognize the counterfeit Christianity that was there, that was in them along with the true, so that they could purify themselves, rejecting sin by the power of Jesus Christ. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, the early apostles developed and laid down the pattern of how the Lord intended his body and church to operate. It's a pattern that's eternal. It's never changed. It's an eternal pattern. And when followed closely, it would make the church of any age the most powerful force on earth. So we need to really understand the power that's available to us. Do we have any idea of the power that Jesus intended for us, uh, for his church to have, to use in this dark and dangerous world? Or has our image of the church become so weak that the church is just a rundown building on some corner where we go once a week to sing songs and, and hear a sermon. You see, the church, the way God designed it, and as the Bible describes it, is an amazing, vibrant, world-changing power. It's a kind of invisible authority that influences and moves the visible authorities on the earth. And because of the powerful influence of the church, people can experience the benefits of a stable society of social law and order and justice and peace. You want to change a nation, you start by changing the people. Same with changing the government. It starts by changing the people. Today, we can easily see the world is in trouble. That it's troubled. It's it's a mess. But we haven't seen even a little bit, you know, the, think of the mess that it's in right now, what it's going through right now. And we haven't even seen a little bit of the tribulation period. <laughs> or the lawlessness and the carnage that would take place if the church was suddenly taken out, raptured out of this world. Wherever the church has followed the biblical pattern and become, has become more of what God designed it to be, Righteous conditions have spread throughout society. And we hear the church crying out. We hear Christians crying out about the depravity and the perversity of all the things that are taking place right now. The church is the most powerful force on the earth to change that. But we have to stick to God's eternal patterns for the church. I love when I was reading Exodus when Moses was given the instructions to build the tabernacle, this is what God said to him in Exodus 25, 9. Moses, you must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Notice God said exactly. 
He didn't say, hey, Moses, this is kind of what I want you to build the tower. I want it to, you know, kind of, and you know, Moses, whatever you think is best, you can throw in a little bit. No, God did not say that. Because God has the perfect design. He said, Moses, I want you to build it exactly by the pattern that I show you. And then in Exodus 39, 43, it says, Then Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it. The people had done it as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. It says, and Moses blessed them. You see, unless we do the work exactly the way God tells us, we're not going to see the blessing. We're not going to see the blessing. When the church has forsaken God's pattern and depends on worldly power and becomes proud and rich and oppressive, then it has become weak and despised and Satan's forces have been let loose in the world. God has given us a set of, a, a set of examples, a set of directions for building a powerful, purposeful, dynamically effective church. We need to read and follow the directions. So in closing... In the weeks ahead, we're going to be opening the scriptures and examining God's directions from the church, which is also God's directions for building a rewarding, effective, vibrant life. And it's through the Koinonia Fellowship of the church that we truly become all that God intended and wants us to be. We find God's truth and instructions about his church all through the New Testament, and especially in Paul's letters which were written specifically to individual churches and to church leaders like Timothy and Titus. And Paul's best work, Paul's best work of the church is his letter to the Ephesians, which deals almost totally with the foundation, nature, and function of the church and its most important relationship to the Lord. So it's in the letter to the Ephesians especially chapter 4, 1 through 16 where we're going to find our guideline to God's truth about the life of the body of Christ, the church. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much, Lord, for your word, the whole word, Lord, and for these specific and special letters like Ephesians, Lord, that we can glean so much from. So, Father, let us be excited about diving into this letter. Let us read ahead. Let us pray and say, Lord, show me. Show me the things that you want me to see here, Lord. Empower me with the Holy Spirit. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit, Lord. Give me wisdom and discernment. Give me the ability to see things I haven't seen before, God. And Lord, may it change my life significantly. And then it will help to change the church. When we change, the church changes, for good or bad. So, Lord, help us to be what you have called us to be. Help the church to be what you've designed it to be, Lord. And let us, God, impact our world, Lord. Impact our neighborhood, all those that we talk to, Lord, for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.